Hello, I'm Penelope Maver and welcome to Earth Converse podcast, where we explore our relationship and conversations with the earth, all in the hope of inspiring a deeper connection with ourselves, each other and the earth that is our home. And today I'm really excited. This is my first like virtual friend, my first Twitter friend that I made. And so this is the first time we've actually virtually seen each other. Lorraine Smith. So I followed her through Volans, the Volans work, and then I noticed that she liked trees a lot and she's a bit of a poet and a writer and I started following her and then she followed back. So we were sort of in that sync. It was when last year and I had this idea for the Earth Converse anthology and it was Lorraine. It was out of anybody. It was you that I posed the idea. What do you think of this idea? And she goes, oh, that sounds great, you know. What? Um, conversations and relationships with the earth? Do you think people will talk about that? Yeah, yeah. And then, and then she said, well, how do I support you? And I went, well, <laughs> yeah, I'd love you to come on. And so we ended up exchanging and it's just been so lovely. And so Lorraine, I mean, she'll tell you, I mean, her vision is to really, is, a, is regenerative. Yeah, she started back in corporate responsibility back in 2004. There's a story before then. But in terms of really stepping into the big conversations with corporates and really helping them look at themselves around their transparency and their, and well, she'll tell you why for me is just so special. And Today is sort of like a, a case study of Lorraine. So she's just done this ultra, ultra sort of marathon run just with her mates. Uh, she turns up on a Sunday to uh, have, a, have a podcast. I bet she's actually wearing, she's made what she's wearing, I'm pretty sure, because she's a weaver and a spinner. Uh, I've got a New Zealand connection too, which I like. So there's just sort of this integrated weaving. And so what we're going to talk about, or we're just going to go settle in for a chat, because there's this real individual connection with trees. She's got a book coming out with about relationship with trees. And then this really strategic, really leading conversations around regeneration. So, hi. Hey, wow. I... Uh, thank you so much, Penny, for having me on the show and for your very kind introduction. I actually want to loop back to the Twitter pen pal thing because I feel like I, I share the excitement of, I feel like I'm meeting a pen pal. And I don't know if you did this when you were little, but when I was a kid, I had written correspondence pen pals, like through a teacher who had a cousin in the UK or, you know, some, some random reason to have a pen pal that I'd never met. And in some cases, well, I think in all cases of the actual pen pals, I never did meet them. But in this case, we get to meet and actually like play in the same sandbox and hang out. And I, I think the, uh, I sometimes argue in my mind about the negative side of social media, you know, the screens. And in a recent podcast you did with some of the youngsters that you had on where you got them talking about screen time and whatnot, thinking, oh, it's, it's clearly a challenge. Um, yet the upside is we can all connect. And so it's what you make of it. And I, the way I use Twitter as much as I can, I, I don't doom scroll. I don't go into the wormholes of darkness. Um, I do seek out people doing amazing things and try to listen more to them. And that's how I found you. And so I just think like, that's beautiful. Also for the kind introduction, I might just, if I can put my bio into a nutshell and then yeah. throw a little query back your way and see where it goes, because I feel like, you know, here we are late November, 2020. Um, it's been almost 20 years of being focused on corporate responsibility as a, I guess, 
profession uh, as the way I turn my lights on and, you know, pay for this internet connection that let me find you on Twitter. Um, and in the last four or so years since becoming independent, so I'm an independent consultant, freelance, uh, based in Montreal. When I first went freelance this time around, I was still living in New York City, doing a lot of work with John Elkington at Volans, as you, as you signaled. And when I went back on my own in 2016, I really wanted to lean into the regenerative nature of the work. So shifting beyond sustainability, beyond the kind of corporate initiatives and, you know, the relentless incrementalism that many of us lament and seek out those edges where new business models are proving that by doing business, you don't just do well, you, you heal, you know, you enable life to thrive. You, you function in what we could call a biomimetic way um, and, and really seeking those out and listening to them and learning from them and, and, and then following like finding them and then finding out who are they working with and who are they working with. It's, it's very fractal in a way when you, you find these pods of activity but I needed to not have to fill out timesheets <laughs> to be able to do that. Um, and so I went out on my own um, and I've been pursuing a bit and, I, and I'll happy to share a bit more of that. But I guess what I've realized is I've still had to keep paying the bills by doing the corporate work. And so I'm still sort of in the belly of the beast doing a lot of environmental, social and governance or ESG reporting work um, and strategy and goal setting with a lot of big companies. And, I'm proud of the work I do in, in a lot of ways. I work with amazing people. Some of the, the teams and clients are just, you know, these are world-class, talented, brilliant humans. And they're all trying to lean in and, and do the right thing. But I do feel like I'm on a little bit of a cusp in terms of how I can contribute to make the kind of difference that I think needs to happen at the pace and scale that I think it needs to happen without really knowing what that even is. And so I, that feels like another edge journey to understand, well, where, where is that happening and how can I help grow? Um, so I do feel like it's an interesting time in terms of what I'm up to. And it, I think it's why, Penny, when you reached out and said you were thinking about exploring the conversations we have with the earth, it felt so resonant because it feels like, yeah, that's, that's what we all need to be. Like, of course, <laughs> you know, it's, it's actually common sense. So when you reached out, I was actually at the Brooklyn Botanical Garden. I remember responding to your WhatsApp message and leaving you a voice memo in response. And I can picture what I, you know, sort of looking around, it's a beautiful time of year. Yeah, so it makes perfect sense. So I wonder, you know, if that's part of what you have been picking up on is this recognition, this awareness, sort of tapping into it and letting it flow. It feels like that's how we found each other. So yeah, I guess I'm sort of floating that as a question to you. Do you sense that or, you know, what? Absolutely. What led you to even pull all this together, you know? Uh, I think, well, it, it, I mean, it goes back to our own individual journey, doesn't it? We find it there. And um, recently, called the Marva Institute, they went for some, they um, put out a pitch for some funds. And I just, on Friday, it said, um, no, we, we didn't accept yours. And all it is is about how to reconnect with the earth. And it's like, I want to know why they declined that. It's like... <laughs> This is the most important thing <laughs> that we need to do. Connect yeah. with ourselves, each other, and the earth that is our home. There's nothing more important. So, yeah. so I'm a little bit blinking. Like, I mean, it's so big. It feels so obvious. Yeah. And it also feels, I was trying to think of the um, parallel with, 
with mindfulness, you know. Um, we've said, like, I, I think I did my, you know, I started to do a PhD like 10 years ago on it. And then it and then it's just sort of exploded, very mainstream. And so, um, I don't know, there's timing, there's cultural change, isn't it? There's people in the footsteps of, you know, humanity, really. And then, yeah. Um, but I yeah. like of mainstream yet I might, I might be for, or just for you like I sometimes describe myself as I'm too hippie for the corporate world and too corporate for the hippie world but I think there's also you know you've talked to, I've heard you talk about being a bridge it's not only just because of your wonderful linguistic skills and your you've worked in like the finance haven't you and you've been a you know lumberjack you know like it's sort of a mix there you know these bridge people or translator people and so I want to mainstream yeah talking to talking to the air yeah it's interesting we have this challenge and i think probably everybody listening to your podcast and you know a lot of the people we'll connect with are probably already in this camp where it seems really obvious to us that we already have the instructions for how to live well it's called nature and we, we just need to read the instructions a little more carefully and then we'll, we'll do all right but then of course you know i'm being a bit glib because well clearly it's not that obvious because it's not how our markets are designed it's not how our economic models and most of our business models are designed it's not even how most of our families are designed you know it's not how most decisions are made so for me to say that it's obvious is maybe unfair and i i think of examples where you know i'll maybe i'll go with the bridge theme for a moment and i and i say everything i say these days i'm sort of questioning like how much of the problem is me <laughs> like where, you know, where's my own kind of, where are my shadows and where are they leading me astray? But let, let's assume for the moment that what I'm about to say is part of the solution, not part of the problem. That's it's a big assumption. But we'll assume that for the moment. Um, I remember when I first got into corporate res responsibility or corporate social responsibility, which I didn't even know was a field when I got into it. I like wandered into a field that I didn't know existed. Like, oh, where am I? This is interesting. Uh, and there's a whole kind of backstory about how I wandered into the field, but but I did. And I, I got there having worked for three years in a financial institution, and then I left. I went, uh, I just quit. I was just like this, even though I had the most amazing bosses, and I've actually just recently reconnected with one of them, and we just had such a warm reconnection. He's put me in touch with interesting folks here in Montreal. So, you know, it was a good interpersonal experience, and yet it didn't make sense to me. And so I left and I didn't, I was there for three years and I didn't have a job to go to. I just knew I shouldn't keep going to that one. I'm not independently wealthy. So it wasn't like I had the, um, you know, I could just do like have leisurely lunches for years on end. Um, but I had enough soft way that I could buy a bus pass and go travel across the country for a while and check in with farmers. And I've always found that if I, like I joked, you know, if I ever want to know an answer to a question, I just ask a farmer because they know stuff and they have to know stuff for their livelihoods. And it's just, they're much more connected to life's cycles and like basic biological reality and the seasons, etc. And as a spinner and a weaver and a knitter, which uh, I have been, well, I'm mostly a knitter. And then I, beca I became a knitter when I was a little kid in the seventies. And then in university, I bumped into spinning. So that was the early 90s. So it's been decades of spinning and many decades of knitting. And then I learned to weave along the way. So I'm more of a spinner. And I'm going to put a pin in that. And we're going to come back to why is spinning actually fundamental and weaving is secondary. Um, but anyways, I learned a lot from farmers. I just decided to leave the financial institution and go travel and talk with farmers who were raising sheep and cattle and all kinds of things. And when I came back, 
uh, I was only traveling for uh, a couple months. I, um, along with making the world's weirdest blanket, I... With the lady said, why don't you do the bus? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's in that presentation that, that yeah. I shared with you. Yeah. I'll put in there because that's a, yeah, Lorraine's got this great little, yeah, story. I'll put the link in so you can access that. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, and in that presentation, I only share a couple visuals because when you take the whole thing in, it just looks like <laughs> crazy, crazy town. Um, but then I needed a job. I really stumbled into the field of corporate responsibility. And I remember well, and she, my friend and colleague, Catherine Bohr, would, would absolutely back me up on this if she were here. She was the woman who hired me to begin working at Canadian Business for Social Responsibility, which was the, the not-for-profit that hired me back then in 2003. And, you know, she said, we need help with communications and member development. And it's basically a network. So we need help doing all the things that a network does. And you've got communication skills and you seem crazy enough to say yes to this job. You don't even know what it is. You can't remember the acronym, but... You have a pulse and we have a tiny budget, so come on over. Um, and she took me up for lunch that first day to welcome me to the tiny little team that was just growing. And I remember saying, so this is interesting. How many years do you think we'll be working on this? Like, when are we done? And she laughed. She was like, oh, it's going to take a little while. <laughs> and I remember thinking, well, why? You know, it's so obvious what we need to do here. And... So I did that work for a number of years. Um, what, what made me go here was the bridge comment. Um, I began just doing like helping with marketing and helping with events, you know, stuff that you actually didn't really need to have a clue about the content. You just needed to know how to like manage an email list and follow up with people. And, but uh, more and more, I got kind of embedded in what was going on. I was like, this is kind of interesting. For instance, um, one of the, uh, we did consulting and we did member networking stuff. One of the consulting projects was with a lot large, company is now publicly listed, a Vancouver-based apparel firm known for its yoga wear, that at the time was still private and kind of had a lot of cachet. And they were doing a, an assessment of their sustainability and their practices. And they had hired Canadian Business for Social Responsibility, CBSR, the organization I was with, to help them with this. And so um, it was kind of an all-hands-on-deck project. And I was sort of rolling up my sleeves and getting in there. And I remember meeting with the team from the company and they said, yeah, well, you know, we're pretty far along on our fabrics, uh, but where we need to look at is our supply chain. And, you know, cause they were out starting to outsource. Whatever. Tell me more about your fabrics. Said, well, no, no, it's all good. We got these, these eco products. Uh, you know, we're working with bamboo. I said, Oh, tell me about why, uh, and this is 2004 or five by this point. Tell me about why uh, your bamboo is an eco fabric. Oh, because bamboo is renewable. Oh, okay. So cotton's renewable. Is cotton an eco-fabric? No, no, cotton's very bad. Oh, why is cotton bad? Because um, it takes a lot of water. Okay, does bamboo take water? No, no, it takes way less water. Oh, what about in the viscose process where it goes from being a plant to being a fabric and it goes through a number? Is there water involved in that? A viscose process? <laughs> you know, it's one of those like, you know, you don't just take bamboo and like wave a wand at it and then it becomes fabric it becomes fabric by being reduced to a slurry, extruded into a filament, spun, knit, or woven, and turned into fabric, dyed, finished, processed in many, many ways. Uh, so the fact that the plant is renewable may be relevant, but so is cotton. Cotton isn't the problem. It's what the humans are doing in the cultivation of the cotton. And so here I am, the like random part-time at that point, new hire, who like couldn't remember the acronym of the business, but I'm talking to this growing apparel company who's positioned themselves very clearly in the market as an eco uh, player. 
And the people responsible actually didn't know the first thing about how their fabric was made. Of course, there are people within the business who knew, but they were not the ones creating the strategy or, or the marketing material. So I find myself playing that role a fair bit where it's like, do you understand how things come to exist? And not that I know everything about how things come to exist, but it turns out, I guess I know more than a lot of people because a lot of people don't have a clue. And for whatever reason, from an early age, even before being officially in the field and kind of been given a mandate to go figure stuff out and bring it back to base camp, I, I remember actually remember quite vividly being in university in the early 90s. And in particular, so I went to Mount Allison in New Brunswick in Canada. And we're still pretty regulated in the beverage alcohol world. Uh, not in Quebec, actually, where I am now. But, um, but in New Brunswick and in Ontario, where I grew up, you could only buy alcohol in what we would call the liquor store or in New Brunswick, the liquor commission. It's the only place you can go. The store sells liquor. So you go to the liquor commission, you know, on your Thursday, Friday night before you start partying and then you get your booze and you go off and you do the fun things you do in school. At least that's what I did. And, but I remember being in the store and looking at the shelves. And of course I'm looking for whatever I'm looking for and buying it, but I'm also seeing at the front is a bottle and behind it is all the other bottles with the same label. And then right beside it is another bottle right behind it. And having this awareness that each of those rows reaches back into many places that I can't see where the glass came from, where the label came from, who designed the label, the stuff inside of it, the cap, the pack, everything just had this like kaleidoscopic universe behind it. And then in front of it, so someone's going to buy it and it's going to go somewhere and it's going to go to a party, it's going to go to a wedding, it's going to go into an abusive household, it's going to go to a frat hazing, it's going to like, what's going to happen when that's consumed? And that's just booze. And that would happen to me all the time. So I've sort of spent, I guess, my life, like, listening to these signals, like, where did this come from? How did it get here? And where is it going? And what's going to happen next? And that bridgey feeling feels like second nature to me for some reason. But I don't think it is second nature, it turns out. it's oh, That's like a... Here power and i'm just thinking just it's kind of fine because the finance was actually for um uh retirement funds wasn't it like it was so much future and then you in order to heal or the first reaction you're leaving that to go down to the roots and to talk to farmers which uh, so you know yeah yeah the superpower um of seeing that of sort of either visualizing it and seeing the sort of the, the logic of that um, in past and present, but also you've got the good questions. You know, you help people think because they're so sort of, yeah, do the strategy, but actually just, just take that pause and to think and ask those tough questions. I guess, although the truth is back then, I didn't know what I didn't know, right? I was just sort of wondering, like, I wonder how these bottles were made. I'm like, I think glass is made of sand. You know, where did they get the sand? Like just kind of musing in a, in a blur of ignorance. And since then, so since leaving, yeah, I'll fill in that hole a bit about retirement savings because it is, it's kind of fun um, or sad actually, but it was a good catalyst for me. Um, in the, those three years that I was working at Manulife Financial, based in Toronto, which is where I'm from and where I grew up. And um, so it was a Toronto-based job, but actually working for the U.S. Pensions Division, which, so Manulife was headquartered in Toronto, but had a big U.S. division. So I was in the U.S. Pensions Division, kind of haphazard group other story how I ended up there um and it struck me as very peculiar that our job was to come up with marketing strategies and the mathematical 
uh, algorithms and the, you know, ensuring the fiduciary responsibility all geared to maximize people saving for retirement without ever really offering any information other than like upon request, the legally required information about what the money was doing for all those decades that it might be invested. So there was tons of marketing stuff saying, if you're young, you know, time is on your side, helping people understand their risk tolerance and like, you know, practical things about financial savings. But I was like, well, you know, and this is, I literally probably never heard the term corporate responsibility or, or ESG investing or, um, sustainability. Like, I, I don't think those were part of my vocabulary at all. Just seemed to me to make sense. Like, if you're going to tell someone they're going to tuck money inside for a few decades and it's going to grow and grow and grow and they're going to be all this, like, rich when they're, they retire. Like, first of all, why do we retire? That's a weird dichotomy, but that's another story. Um, and then it's like, they're going to have all this money, but what has the money been doing? Because they weren't stuffing it under the mattress. If they stuffed it under their mattress, they could see what it's doing. Nothing. Just under their mattress waiting for me. But it's not. We're handing it to you. You're this massive business with towers everywhere and broker dealers and, and, you know, fund lineups and asset managers and all kinds of stuff. Like, well, surely it's paying for something more than just the machine, right? You know, like help us out here. And that was considered heresy. So leaving that world and going into what was the CSR world more frequently called the sustainability world as time went on. And now Although I'm, I'll humor those terms, I don't em, embrace them. And even regeneration, I'm a little cautious around it. I almost like don't want to use words. I feel like, you know, trees and migratory birds and bats, they don't need to label things. They just function. And that's a ridiculous thing to say. And here we are speaking English and English is great. So I'll use English and say, um, getting to regeneration now, I've had the honor frankly, uh, and privilege and very humbling experiences in many cases of going backstage in a lot of industries. So I've either worked on projects and been a paid consultant or advisor or facilitator, or I've been an engaged stakeholder, like giving perspective on, or sometimes I've just been a like, slightly random and not always invited guest where I, I find myself, reminds me of that, oh, what's that Woody Allen movie, Zelig, where he kind of, he's this character who just keeps showing up in the strangest places. I sometimes feel like Zelig. And that's meant that I've gone deep into sometimes actually into the factories or raw material suppliers of apparel companies, of food and other fast moving consumer goods companies, of mining and metals companies, certainly banks and fragrance and flavor. And I mentioned that because going deep into the fragrance and flavor industry is where I had the flashbacks to being in the liquor commission and seeing those bottles. At one point, we were in one of the production facilities of one of the largest flavor and fragrance companies in the world. This facility happened to be in New Jersey in the U.S. And we're walking through. I'm on a team that's doing a whole bunch of deep dive stuff to look at their strategy and goals and whatnot. And we're in this production facility and we walk past this stacked high bunch of crates. And I have this flashback to late high school because we're walking past this true confession. Sorry, mom. um, That we're walking past the peach schnapps flavor barrels that will be shipped to uh, McGillicuddy's or whatever the, and it was this wretched, wretched booze, totally targeted to teen binge drinkers. I mean, like what an awful product, (laughs) but walking past the smell of it. And then I remembered my feelings in the liquor commission where it was like, where do all these things come from and where are they going? And it's like, 
Well, this is where they come from. They come from the Willy Wonkas of the world who've been designing molecules, sometimes from natural plants and other biological systems, sometimes totally synthetically, petrochemical based, like a lot of the fragrance substances are made from polymers, from, from long chain molecules from the petrochemical industry. So, and, and that yet your nose or your tongue say strawberry or dark chocolate or chicken, you know, and sometimes it really is from Nemo in that same facility, you know, workers are doing their thing and there's all these areas taped off and forklifts everywhere and a worker goes by, you know, with his hairnet and his big bin of frozen chickens. And it was like, oh, that's for the chicken flavoring that's going on down in, you know, building number four. So I, I've been filling in those gaps, like learning a lot of time in the forestry industry. Um, and I was an industrial tree planter. I was an industrial tree planter, summers 91 and 92, I think. And then the object of the game was put a tree in the ground every six feet. And I, I didn't know. I mean, I guess I knew, but wasn't asking more. What did that mean? Like put a tree in the ground. Okay. There's going to be rows. We're in clear cuts. We're in industrial clear cuts. These, I knew that I was in a clear cut. I knew the land had been devastated and that that didn't feel good. I knew that it felt off, but we were so young. It was, a, this is going to sound really disrespectful and I, I actually don't mean it disrespectfully. So take the analogy with a big grain of salt and awareness of my ignorance, but it was a little bit like what, I've understood the military can be like where you conscript lots of young folks who don't really know much and who are given an assignment and the assignment is so challenging that you just kind of lean in and then you start to compete within the assignment. And so we were like, I mean, we were messy and we worked hard. We worked 14, sometimes 16 hour days because the light up in Northern Ontario during the summer would stay long. And we're in brutally hot clear cuts and we're living rough. I mean, we were not good to our bodies and, and we just did it. We didn't ask questions. There were times when our site was a swamp and we're up to our knees in like muck for 14 hours and still plugging those trees, or, you know, planting something that's swamp happy, black spruce or something like that. And just, so overwhelmed by the physical ardor that questioning like does this make sense to replant one species for hectare upon hectare in the blaring sun covered in pesticides by the way these things are covered in pesticides so yeah that that sort of fed my kaleidoscopic understanding as time went on and i worked with the forest sector it was like oh that industrial tree planting is what ultimately led to the forest stewardship council and all kinds of Anyway, I could go on, but I started to fill in the kaleidoscopic blanks a little bit. And that's helped me maybe be that bridge and start to see a little bit. And the insight, yeah, yeah to see it. So there's a couple of things when you were saying, like, to go to the source, to see air production process, like to see the, from the source. I think, did you ever see the planet of the humans? I think one of the most powerful things about the documentary. I haven't seen it, but I've heard a lot about it. Yeah, yeah. Really, I liked it. What they did is like just going literally to the source, to, you know, the raw minerals, you know, the big industrial processes that make our car door. We need to be more aware of because I don't know what really took it took to do this computer or my cup of tea because we're so removed from it. There was this incredible. Did you see the Nature Risk Rising report out earlier this year for the House Coopers? 
and EF, the World Economic Forum. They were going to do like, it's called Nature Risk Rising. They're going to do three series and one so far. I, I actually did a comment on it. One of the conclusions was some industries um, have a higher reliance on nature. And I just thought, yeah. we're all yeah. reliant on nature. I mean, of yeah, course. We're much reliant on some other magical planet that we just all fundamental elements is irrelevant but so I think there are some industries that are obviously closer to that you know um, yeah. the forestry is different from the you know flavour and fragrance um, but there's also something about sort of culturally where there, you know so many people and I've talked about this before um, on a when with um, Linda talking about you know the, the survival work and the soul work isn't there and most of us are sort of in survival work. We do, we just do the task, you know, whether it's, or we don't think, we just get the money and um, and we're not even, and leaders aren't, don't even, we're not even encouraged to think because of the leadership, this is my leadership thing coming in, about being very directive. People don't coach, they just sort of do mm. that sort of liberate human talent or human potential. They just say, yeah, can you get that task? Can you plant those trees? Do it now, yeah. you know. And we're all. I think it's also part of you know. Just tell me what to do. You know, we're full of talent and potential, but we also can easily take the easy road out. But I suppose, like when you go and say you're on the edge, you know, you're in the the valley of the beast. I like, you know, like, and the sort of out. You know, you're on the edges, and that's where things happen, don't they? Mm, the fertile edges. I just read. Uh, is it Maddie Harland, one of the early voices in permaculture? Um, and I think Permaculture Magazine, I may not have the name exactly right, but she published a really wonderful book. It's a beautiful book visually, but it's also just a wonderful series of essays from across the decades of publishing around permaculture. And it's called Fertile Edges, which is, of course, a very permaculture-esque notion that that's where the action is. I want to pick up on something you said about our potential, because I feel like this has been a big theme for me again, sort of challenging myself, like how much of the problem is me and how can I contribute to solving that? Um, I feel like, you know, I'm, so it's not, I think the timing makes a ton of sense why you host this podcast now, like these ideas around having conversations with the earth, about nature, about our relationship with nature. I think, you know, it's very timely. It's, it's emerging in many areas. I'm seeing it in, in my corporate work. I'm seeing it. I mean, I guess I'm awake to it. So it's not, surprising it's sort of coming at me but it feels like it's very of the moment and I feel like one of the things I hope to help others see is that you know just as you say like every industry is close to nature like there's no there's no not nature and I like to push that further when I hear people talking about so for, for instance right now uh, one of the results of the pandemic in Canada and I suspect this is happening in other regions as well is that there's a bit of a flight from the city. So those who can afford it, let's say you have you live in the city, but you have a country home, right? A lot of people are really prioritizing staying in their country home. Those who don't have that luxury are moving, they're cashing out, their city home has gotten, you know, the value has gone up, they're cashing out. So they're buying new homes or new land to build a home in what we would call the country. And um, that's doing a bunch of things. It's driving prices up in areas that were kind of fringy before where it's like, what the heck? Uh, now it's not fringy at all. And it's getting uh, very 
very expensive if you're trying to buy and it's getting quite lucrative if you happen to have land there it's like whoa gee if i could make a mint i'll set aside judgment although you're probably hearing a little bit in my voice around uh whether or not that's a good idea and i'll just say that um we have the vast majority of humanity living in cities and that I do believe we'll see in the near term because of the effects of climate, first and foremost, although the pandemic is an interesting uh, confluence, I think the major impacts of um, urban migration that we're going to see will be because of the changes in where water is or isn't. Um, in even with those changes, I from everything I've understood from the smarter people around me who model these things, our human population is set to be predominantly urban for the coming decades. And what I'm keen to not not resist, but kind of move around and find another way to understand is that if you want to feel safe and well and well fed and uh to enjoy quality of life, if you feel like you have to leave the city to do it, then I'll be a bit of a jerk right now and say, I think you're probably contributing to the problem because uh, most of us are in cities and it's the cities that are producing the things that are going to let you live the life of Riley in the country. And most of the, this is now just be judgmental and like mean, most of the life of Riley leaders that I know are wealthy. So it's, it's, a, it's a privilege. And so when you run that math, you're like, oh, I, I don't really want to deal with that dirty, you know, the great unwashed there in those alleys and nooks and crannies. I'm going to go where I can get fresh air. And I, frankly, I should be honest, like my family has a country home, <laughs> although now it's actually my sister's full-time residence on Manitoulin Island. And I grew up going to a cottage. We're not uber wealthy by a long shot, but if we, if my siblings and I decided that we wanted to sell the land on the largest freshwater island in the world, on the shore of the largest lake within a lake in the world, it's a beautiful piece of property. If we decided that we were going to like reorient our finances, we could suddenly sell it now because land is rising. So I'm, I'm one of the jerks that I'm critiquing. Um, I, would rather change that paradigm and say, what would it look like to be in the city and have those feelings? What would it look like to be in this, I'm in an apartment right now on the fourth floor of a building in what's called Vieux Montreal, the old part of Montreal, right down by the old port. Then, you know, let's be honest, this part of the city, which is by the way, a very touristic part, not right now because of the pandemic, but during the nicer months when there isn't a pandemic, this area is swamped. I sit out on my balcony and I just watch tourists flood in and out of it. It's like a little Disney kind of situation, but I don't see a Disney situation. I see a situation where uh, when this land was colonized by European imperialists and the first nations who were here were um, largely devastated over the centuries and or you know, cornered into very small, less savory parts of land, um, you know, a genocide that played out over centuries and in many ways, at least an apartheid regime still continues here. Technically, the genocide, according to the Canadian government, wrapped up in 2015 with the missing and murdered Indigenous women. Yeah, that's just... Inquiry. And I can add some notes for the show notes for this. Most Canadians don't even know that there was a genocide playing out here in my list. 
uh, and so the, the effects of that are, are active now. Uh, so what, what I see when I look around here is I see the legacy of imperialism, colonialism, genocide on the human front and a very asymmetrical trade arrangement, let's just say. I also see the legacy of an extremely extractive linear industrial mindset, which is, you know, oh, look at these towering white oaks and these amazing cedars. Those are perfect for shipbuilding. And it happens we have all this stone we've brought across from England uh, to keep our ships, you know, I actually I forget the truth. There's something about the shipping brought a lot of stone, I think, as ballast, or I'm going to get the technology all wrong. But anyways, brought a lot of stone over from England. So the forest was removed for the shipping industry and all the other things that the, you know, motherland wanted and uh, replaced with stone. So there's beautiful cobblestones here. And uh, the people were kind of turned upside down. And then this whole city was built such that the natural surroundings, beautiful Mount Royal, Montréal, which was a lovely forested space, you know, all the way that nature used to live in relation to the St. Lawrence River was completely disrupted by all the building and highways and, you know, canalization of the river so that ships could pass and get past the rapids and, and, and. So I look at that and in, instead of just saying like, oh man, it's a trafficking mess around here, like get me out to the country. And by the way, I do feel nice when I go out to the city, but instead of saying, I got to get out of here, I say, well, what kind of decisions can we make now that bring us, we're, we're probably not going to remove all these buildings. We're probably not going to have towering white oaks here. Certainly not in my lifetime, but what would it look like to, imagine that we could you know what would it look like to say the city is where you want to be not because it's where the action is not because you can get a job not because it's creative or there's concerts but you know those things too maybe but because the air is beautiful because you feel well because you can eat delicious food that came from right around the corner right so i look at that and i say that's the direction of travel that I think we we need to be going in. If you still just don't like being in a city, fine. But if you want to contribute to what comes next, especially if you have children, maybe instead of escaping because you've got the financial resources, what about like leaning in and being part of imagining creating those spaces? So that really sort of occupies a lot of my mind these days. And it definitely comes across as heresy. <laughs> I do feel like a little bit of a crazy person. It's kind of how I'm feeling in my life. Well, it's one of Earth's, you know, big challenges. Mm. Yeah. What is the heresy? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe, I mean, I'm actually saying, these are really judgmental things I'm saying, and I, if, if I think of my friends and family and peers, if they were here joining this conversation, you know, maybe, maybe they'd have a very different way of responding to what I'm saying. So, Maybe I'll just speak for myself and say, I, I don't yet see that it's normal to imagine cities in this way. Mm. In fact, where I see progress, uh, progress in, in quotes, uh, where, where I see resource flowing is to doing more harm, not less. So um, I think I mentioned to you in some of our correspondence I went on. So I'm obviously off the top, you mentioned I did some running. I'm a, I'm a long distance runner among other habits I have. And um, I, you know, part of me just likes to run. I think some people 
experience a kind of inner rhythm or inner calm in quiet seated meditation. And I I do meditate as well. I do have a, a daily meditation practice. There's something about the rhythm of moving for me that, that I hear people describing their meditation practice. And I say, ah, I find that when I, I call it making eye contact with the world. So when I run, I'm making eye contact with the world. I'm moving at a human pace. And I'm also experiencing the geology wherever I am, right? If it's hilly, I'm experiencing hilly. If it's a riverbank, I'm that flat, you know? So I've learned this habit of running has been really good to me because it's allowed me to run to places that you don't see from the road or the train tracks or however you're getting around. And I've started to notice things that are lifting up for me and kind of signaling. And I was scheduled to run my first ultra marathon uh, on October 10th this year. And it was a trail run in Bromont, one of the local mountains not far from here. And, um, and a lot of races were being canceled this year. A lot of people switching to virtual races or kind of just changing it up. But Bromont, right through the summer, they were able to stay the course. It's a pretty small race and, you know, people can distance quite a bit on these runs. So it looked right up until near the date that they were going to be able to pull it off. So I was training, training, training all summer. It would have been my first ultra distance. So ultra marathons, anything over the marathon distance, which is marathon is 42.2 kilometers. I've run it. I've competed in a few marathons, but they've always been road runs. And I've been really keen to get out more on trails and just go further, just get, it, get as far as I can. I want to come back to the human potential thing in a sec, that and spinning and weaving. But I hadn't done a lot of trail running, so I was training for trails. And then 10 days before it was canceled, because we started to get into this wave two, Montreal was in what they call a red zone. They were really discouraging people from coming and going. And so I ended up creating my own virtual race in the end, and I decided to pursue a line of inquiry that had been on my mind since moving to Montreal from New York uh, just about two years ago, where I started to really check in with the river. I live right on down at the old port, so I can see the Lachine Canal within 10 seconds if I go out my door, literally within 10 seconds. If I go 30 seconds, I can get to the shore of the St. Lawrence River. And the river has kind of just been very present for me. And I've been thinking about it a fair bit. And so I decided to switch the race. It was going to be tricky for me to do an unsupported trail race and just the logistics and everything. It's going to be tough. It was an 80K um, race that I was registered for. So I decided to create a a route that is uh, about the equivalent and ended up being closer to 90K, exploring the banks of the St. Lawrence, mostly on the South Shore, especially where we... Uh, created the St. Lawrence Seaway, where we cut, I say we, humans in the 1950s, cut into the south shore of the St. Lawrence to make way for large ships to be able to get all the way to Lake Ontario and to some of the bigger ports there, right? Toronto, Detroit, go up. And these ships can now go all the way to the northern part of Lake Superior. So all the way into the Great Lakes system of the North American continent. And I just wanted to understand that more. Like, what does that look like? What does that mean? What does that what is that for the river? And of course, I don't speak river. You know, I don't really know what it means for the river. But I <clears throat> I went on that run. And what I saw was, uh, it was sort of awesome, as in I was full of awe, many times over, partly just for the resilience of the river. I mean, it, this is an amazing river. It is huge. One of the bridges I crossed, it's, it's two and a half kilometers long, the bridge, and it's a footbridge. It really touches the shore very close. It's not kilometers of like ramp. It's just crossing the river. It's too long. Just beautiful. 
um, and what it's able to do. Like it's just always renewing itself. It's just the most amazing place. Even though we still dump raw sewage, we still dump raw sewage from Montreal into the river uh, and many other things. Um, yet the river is able to do a lot of the rivery things it's been doing since time immemorial. But the other thing that really caused me awe was this sense of our human so-called progress is all, not all, but a lot of what was evident to me is designed to like get over and around the river, like get the river kind of out of our way, mm. sort of overcome the river. And so things like these enormous bridges, um, these massive infrastructure projects that in many ways are incredible feats of engineering. Reminds me a little bit of antibiotics. It's like antibiotics are amazing because they save lives and, you know, thank goodness we invented them. But they're also causing us a lot of harm. So when they're used indiscriminately, they're not good. And I feel like our engineering is the same. And looking at how we've been living in relation to this river, I just started to sense, not started, I was reminded of my sense of our not respecting this incredible body of water that allows us to live. And is the reason we're here, we're here because it made a lot of sense for humans to be where the river was. There was already settlement here. It was a sort of a logical place from a multi-resource perspective. So when I think about progress, I worry, worry is not the right word. I observe that the mainstream, why is it heresy to talk about the city the way I talk about it? It's because that's still not understood as a good idea. A good idea is a bigger, better bridge where traffic can flow more fluidly. A good idea is where, you know, high-skill construction jobs are developed. And I think, okay, like, I get that. I'm not going to say those are necessarily bad ideas. <laughs> but I think a good idea is where nobody in their right mind would want to leave the city because it's wonderful. Because their needs are more than met. Because they can thrive. So that's the heresy pieces. It's just a bit weird to be like... You know, the, the closest I hear, and this just makes my heart shrivel up like a little raisin, the closest I hear to why people want to be in the city is because real estate values are still going up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, you know, and I think it's sort of like I'm thinking, you know, where you're, where you're going in the corporate world, the organizational industrial world, you're finding those really good case studies. The, the, the people are doing pre pretty amazing things and are changing, are changing at systemically, you know, systemically. In, in, yeah. Um, I suppose systemically is by, by nature the biggest system. But, you know, doing their best is where their pockets, and that's where the change happens. That's where the fringe happens. So you are that. And I can imagine, and, you know, there's also there'll be people in the city who do want to stay that, you know, they love that connectivity and the vibrancy and they have, are committed to an urban, urban environment. And, you know, you'll find those people as you do, you know, that that will, and from that they resonate, resonate out, don't they? Because I do think that's a, that's a, that is literally across the world, that urbanization, that idea that we, everything is nature is incredibly is our sort of root that wherever we are, we can connect with that. And, um, of course, if you're, you know, and once again, it's a spectrum, the person who's in a, in a city slum is not having the same experience as somebody out in there, you know, have bought a, a thinker 
Yeah. I know I'm an urban planner by trade. I did the oh, I didn't know that. regional council and their growth strategy and how to integrate, you know, economic, environmental, social, you know, in terms of and growth. You know, I'm, I'm really fascinated by how do we do that? How do we do that well? How do we get a bunch of people in that can co-create? And I love it. I mean, Japan, you know, you go to not that Japan's the ultimate, but, you know, all that neon and engineering, and then you find these oasis, you know, and they can still have these, this, this beauty and respect and, I don't know, there's some sort of balance I don't know. I'm just taking, like, the river. I loved your exploration of the river. I'm going to put a link into that. You are observing that urban environment and, you know, the impact and um, where there's progress and evolution and where there's, you know, real damage. And then I just, I don't know, we weave back to potential, like, I I, I sense the sort of, like, engineering sort of masculine thing with this flowing river, you know, the the feminine... That dance, you know, I think I think we're imbalanced in ourselves towards that masculine way of being in the Western yeah. world, and so we're out of our femininity, and that's reflected in in, in how our, our spaces. I'm going to come back to this human potential thing because I I see this as relevant within companies, mm. and then within like the urban planning, and you know, it's it's sort of everywhere and. So I'll just kind of talk about it as a broader theme for a sec and then land it in, in the city. Um, and I'll, I'll borrow running because it's a really handy, it's not even an analogy, it's a, like a reality, which is, you know, so I'm a pretty average runner. I'm just going to come out and say it. Like I'm, I, wasn't, I wasn't a runner. Like I didn't do track and field when I was a kid. I, didn't, I was not known as a runner. Like it wasn't like, oh, yeah, she's always been a runner. Oh, she ran lots of races. No, I did run my first marathon when I was in my twenties in 1997. Um, so, and then, you know, back then we didn't have all the apps or anything, you know, cell phones. And we, you know, I used a piece of string on the subway map to like measure my distances and like, you know, I had a plan and I trained, but I was not a, not particularly quick. It was a bit of an anomaly. I didn't have other friends running. It was actually a, a, my boss, this amazing woman that I, I was sort of mentored by when I worked at World Wildlife Fund before working at Mainline Financial. Um, so, you know, I ran a bit in my 20s, but I wasn't training all that hard. I didn't run it very well. I think my first marathon I ran in like four hours and 17 minutes or something. It was by no means a, a, like an elite time. And I dabbled a bit over the years, uh, coming and going from it. Sometimes my I find my spinning and knitting, my reading and my running all compete a little bit for time because those are mutually exclusive tasks for the most part. Um, and so it would ebb and flow and, you know, my life went in various directions. And then when I was living in New York for more or less the previous 10 years now, um, I got back into running. It was actually Hurricane Sandy that got me back into running. So Hurricane Sandy hit New York in uh, the fall of 2012. And I, up until then, once in a while, we'll go for a run, maybe five or 10 K, not consistently, not with any race goal. And then when Sandy hit and it uh, flooded the subway tunnels. So at that time I lived in Manhattan and I worked, I had a day job. That was my last like proper day job. I worked um, at sustainability, which is a boutique uh, sustainability consulting firm that John Elkington founded. And he was, he was no longer there when I worked there, but um, yeah. So I worked there. I lived in Manhattan, but the office was in Brooklyn. So every morning I would take the subway, but then Sandy hit and the subways were uh, flooded. And I thought, well, 
it's not that far actually it's about five miles which is about an eight kilometer run well i can definitely do that on foot that's not a big deal i hadn't done it before it hadn't crossed my mind to do it before but i was like well i'm gonna do that so i got a knapsack which is still my knapsack today every time i put it on hurricane knapsack. <laughs> and i jogged in and then i jogged home at the end of the day and it was just sort of what i did it was like my commute basically because all of my colleagues lived in Brooklyn and so they could all get there. It was, it was a really interesting scene in New York after Sandy. It was a little mad man. My neighborhood did not lose power, but I was just two blocks. We called it NOPO and SOPO. So NOPO was no power and SOPO was some power. I lived in SOPO. So I was, I think 49th street was the cutoff and everything south of 49th didn't have power, but I was just North. So we had power and, uh, and then I would run through the part of the city that didn't have power. And it's just like, it was bizarre. And running home, it was pitch black. Of course, all the lights, the street lights were out. And the, the car, uh, the traffic lights were out. Although, of course, there was no gas, so there was hardly any traffic on us. So for a couple weeks, I ran basically 16 kilometers a day, broken up in two to commute to work. And then I realized like, oh, this is totally doable. It's not because I'm a marathon runner. It's just because it's totally doable. And that got me back into distance running. I decided to register for the New York marathon the next year, which I ran. And that got me into the New York running community. And I ended up kind of getting part of this really interesting group that met on the Upper East Side at this great running shop, um, Urban Athletics at uh, 96th on Madison, if my memory serves. Great shop from this fellow Jerry McCary was just this like, is this sort of savant running coach. And he guided a bunch of us and, and I went from kind of just hacking around running a bit to running a 325 in Chicago um, in 2016. So by this point, I'm in my mid forties, my, my late forties. So I've gotten faster. I've taken almost an hour off my marathon check. So part of this just sounds like I'm bragging about my running, but actually what I'm saying is I'm not a, like, if you saw me, I mean, I guess now if you saw me in my running gear, you'd say I look pretty fit. But honestly, I'm not known as an athlete. I'm not an extraordinarily strong person. Um, all I did was decide to do those things and then to listen and learn from people who knew a lot about how to unlock a certain kind of potential. And in 20 years, as I aged, I got faster by an hour. And that showed me something really fundamental that's been influencing my work which is because that's just running but I think that that's true on a kind of fractal level for everything that if you start to see things in a way that says well what if or what's possible or what could happen if I talk to people who know more about how to do this who understand it differently who've been there already and they describe it and then I believe it exists and then I go there then what happens it's like it turns out really amazing things happen. And, and so just to continue in running for a second, I, you know, got better and learned more and got excited about it. And not because I was winning medals. I still don't place. Like I'm not a, I mean, if I go in a really small race, I might place for my age group, but I'm, I'm not even close to the elites, but I really changed my capacities. And I started to imagine longer distances. And part of that came from spending a bit of time in Ethiopia which is a little bit of a side trail. I started playing with some conversations with taxi drivers. I was like, I want to go to Ethiopia. And I did for a month. And then it was so amazing. I had to go back and learning from folks there 
where the idea of covering a lot of distance on foot is just part of how people live in the highlands. Of course, the greatest runners in the world also come from there, but that almost feels like a fetishized version. That's the like North American or like Western brain going, wow, how far do they go? How fast do they go? That's amazing. That's, that's just like our elite fascination without recognizing like, actually there's people who cover that kind of ground all the time. It's not a story. It's a way. And I started to realize that we all have so much potential in all kinds of ways, physical, sure. So running an ultra marathon. Yep. I ran 90 kilometers about a week, a month ago. And like three days later, I went for a run and I'm not superwoman. Like my toenails don't look very good, but I'm, I'm just a regular person who decided to make that possible by eating and like feeding myself and inspiring myself in a way it's like this morning we were going to run. I don't know. I was going to maybe do like 20 K we accidentally ran over a marathon. Like it just kind of happened. I love that accidentally. So when possible. So then I land that in the city land and I think, okay, what happens when the people who've been up until now doing like policy development for better transit, like what happens when that sort of exponential mindset filters into their drinking fountain and they get to daydream about what's possible there. And I don't know because that's not my area of expertise, but I just think, Oh my gosh, what if we all got to be our full potential? Yes. No, but absolutely. I, I just like, you know, I, I think it's sort of part of why I'm a leadership coach, you know, in terms of like what our potential, I mean, there's so many things I can, I just, that come sort of flooding to mind, you know, like Tim Galway's, you know, performance equals potential minus interference interference is usually just psychological or you know there's yeah. research now that where our body doesn't fail us it's just our you know our mind thinks our limits there's like you know around I've, i did some work with um sports you know psychologists that, that you know yeah yeah um, uh, i talked to ray actually about alternative realities and we have a consensual consensual realities that we have a fixed view of that but there's some alternative realities that are potential and talking about psychedelics actually in terms of liberating some thought patterns or you know your yeah your transport planners the fact and I'm working with leaders is like actually if they did more dream time what that bring I mean I have seen on leadership programs you know this when we do the two hours solo people really connect with but we have this thing this task going back to your (laughs) rows and rows of trees because we can get stuck in that system but yeah we have absolutely it all there I think the the thing that I'm puzzling or I'm sitting with these days is because there's no question in my mind that we all have a tremendous amount of potential much of it untapped that can go in so many directions, right? It could be, it could be athletics, but it could also be art and poetry and dance and, and it could be urban planning and it could be banking. The problem that I'm sitting with is how to allow that type of potential to flow into one another. And what I mean by that is, so it's all good and well, and I've, I've actually seen it happen with, you know, leadership coaching and, and individuals where they go through these amazing transformations and they're like, yes, 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 I'm so full of potential that they walk out of the role they're in to go be full of potential somewhere else that's more freeing because staying 
within these confining sort of fictions that we've accepted, these realities that we've converged around doesn't work anymore. They see and they're, they, now that they see, they can't unsee. And so away they go. And I'm saying they, I should probably say I, because I have left organizations. I have stepped out of structures that haven't worked for me. And I'm trying to imagine or, well, frankly, I'm trying to figure out how can I contribute to that level of potential being understood and desirable and sought out and allowing it to intersect with others doing same to build whole new structures. Because the reason they're building a new, faster, wider, better um, Pont Champlain, the, the Champlain Bridge here, is because there's more traffic. Well, the reason there's more traffic is people have more cars. And they have more cars because they're coming, going to their jobs. So to just say, like, hey, guys, you know what? we got to live in relation to this river, which is a really awesome river. And so we're going to we're gonna take apart the bridge for a while. Um, so that, cause it's all progressy, you know, and we don't want that anymore. Like, okay. But then all the other pieces of the reason the bridge was decided to be a good idea are still present. So what do we do to not have it be a hippie concept that you don't get in your car and drive to work every day. And, you know, thank you coronavirus for teaching us that actually you don't have to get in your car and drive to work every day. I'm sorry that you're killing a lot of people in the process, but I'm grateful that you're teaching us to see the world in a different way. And by the way, cars were also killing a lot of people every day. So I, I keep meaning to do some numbers and find out the known Corona deaths and the known auto and traffic related deaths, because there's been very little restriction on cars. <laughs> in fact, we're still encouraged to like buy them. Thanks. I'll veer into territory. I, I ought not going to. Um, so how to allow the, structures to change and allow people to desire to change those structures. That's the question I come away with because individually I see amazing recognition. I see amazing sort of inner work and realization and leadership. And I'm hungering for this emergent group think that is the inverse of a bunch, a bunch of us tree planters putting a tree in the ground and rather a bunch of us, like, imagine if we all ran amok and we're like, you know, we're not actually going to plant these trees. We're going to plant some other trees. We're going to see yeah. this. We saw that moose over there, poor thing. We're going to see if her calf is over there. You know, we're going to, like, do some wildlife restoration here. We didn't do that. Of course we didn't do that. And what would it look like for that to have been the, of course we did that? How does that work? Community's doing that, isn't there? You know, in terms of they're the equivalent these days. I think, yes. I think there are, in terms of um, there's much more sort of fluid fluid structures or mm-hmm. collective work. I think, um, so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I'm sort of want to push back and sort of like, given that, what, what do you suggest? Mm. I've, I've got some ideas, but you already know, you know, Oh, yeah, I don't know if I do, but I, you know, maybe this is where I'll take the pin out of beginning piece. And this will be like really probably annoyingly metaphoric and abstracted, but it's it's where I, I draw my, my guidance, really. Um, so people often, especially in our field and the work we do where we talk about, you know, regeneration and ecosystem restoration or like this really advanced kind of sustainability 
Um, people talk about network weaving and weaving, and and I I appreciate the comment if I interpret it sort of bringing things together, creating structure and form where it wouldn't have been. And where that's coming from, for those who've woven, they would recognize that weaving has a warp and a weft, so you've got threads running in, in, perpendicular to one another, over, under, over, under, so they create this structure that wouldn't otherwise be there. And I totally respect that. However, as a spinner, and a spinner first before a weaver, I feel like we want to take a closer look at spinning. And I, I did a bit of writing on this on my blog, and it's funny, it's like, what people don't realize is it's actually quite subversive and provocative. It's the, it's the least looked at blog post because I think it's so subversive. Not that my, my blog is a very quiet corner of the internet, but um, this is so subversive that people can't see it. And I think what needs to happen is people need to see this. So what am I, what is the, this there's nothing to weave if you don't have yarn Right? So weaving, we talk about, we bring things together, we create structure. Well, those things have to exist. That yarn has to exist or those other things that are being woven, the people, the structures, the organizations. And spinning is how those things come to exist. So spinning is literally taking fiber, whether it's that, you know, good bamboo fiber, that good cotton fiber, that good recycled polyester, you know, PET bottles, uh, sheep wool, goats wool, rabbit fur, you name it. Fiber that has no integrity whatsoever. No integrity at all. I have some here. It's not useful for those just listening, but anybody who can see, this is a little bit of cotton that I grew on my windowsill in, in New York City, and, it, and it's cotton. It's, it's got no integrity whatsoever, just like the fiber in your, I don't know, in a pill bottle or on the end of a Q-tip. No integrity. You, you cannot do much with this. You could use it for stopping, I guess. You could, I don't know polish something but when you spin it when you put twist in it and it is the simplest form of energy it's just a little bit of twist and twist is a form of energy like heat or pressure you have thread and thread has integrity so you go from something with no integrity at all that isn't even noticed it looks literally like fluff it is dismissed as fluff (laughs) you take it and you create something that can have the strength of steel silk and silk is stronger than steel, pound for pound, when spun. Mm-hmm. So you take something that has no integrity and you give it integrity. And then you have the ingredients to create structure, to weave. Mm-hmm. And so what I, what I mean by that isn't just like, there are spinners too. And, and by the way, and those who know me well will know I've, I've made this comment probably ad nauseum. But Danella Meadows, systems thinker extraordinaire, whom many of us, revere her work and and turn to it again and again. She was a spinner. She was a hand spinner. And I don't think that's coincidence. I think spinning teaches integrity because it's required in order to happen in a very tactical way, kind of like um, I said, you know, migratory birds don't need language and trees don't need language. They're able to do what they need to do. Spinning doesn't need language. It just is and there's a lot of things like that gardening you know you could you could go to a lot of very basic things and say we could use words to describe it but they are the teacher so what do we do about it i feel like i would like to help recognize and make recognizable those things going from fluff that have fluff that has no integrity to something with some strength and integrity that's ready to contribute to a structure whether that is an educational module 
or an organization or um, just an idea. And I feel like it's the spinning, it's the taking the emergent fluff that is all around us all the time, <laughs> literally, um, and giving it enough structure to be useful. And so I'm constantly watching for where do I see that? And I'll, I'll give a concrete example that I see that gives me great hope where I look very nearby to here. And there's a number of Mohawk communities that are still, in spite of everything we've wrought, they are not only resilient, but in some cases, there are examples of thriving and really amazing things happening. Um, and I see new language apprenticeship happening where the youth in, uh, so I'm very fortunate to have a couple of friends in one of the nearby communities here and they run a farm and it's just the most amazing farm. I mean, they wouldn't call it regenerative, but it is. I mean, they've all, in five years, they've radically restored a piece of land and what they grow is just amazing and how they grow, they grow lots of stuff integrated. And most of the people who help them out on the farm are Mohawk youth. And a lot of what happens there is in their own language and a lot of teaching that happens around like skills that are, you know, as I said, if you want to know how to do anything, ask a farmer, these guys know how to do it. They're learning how to do more. And look at that. And that's just this like little bit of fluff, right? It's these like connections of language coming back together. It's connections of skill and awareness, connection to the soil, connection to the past, to the present, to the future. And it goes widely unnoticed. There isn't a website. There isn't a, you know, a not-for-profit charitable number that you can make a donation to. It's, it's just happening. And in its happening, it is creating the ability for something that has integrity to be connected to more of a structure. So I feel like how we do that, I don't know what it means to the you know, next big construction project in Montreal. I don't know. That's beyond my intellectual ken at the moment. I can dream about that. But in real life today now, I don't have to dream. I can actually see with my own eyes these amazing elements of fluff coming together to make real yarn that can be really woven into something that matters. Mm. Not only are you doing it with your, you with your cotton, growing your cotton, but you've been doing that probably all your life. And I think that, I mean, well, corporate social responsibility would be fluff in many respects. It was out there, wasn't it? It was. Mm. And now it's right up. You know, sustainability is, you know, the CEO's got that, got it now or it's all there. It's, yeah. You know, Although... Uh, yes, I think that's true. And so we have an exciting challenge with that because until it's part of a business model that's regenerative, I think it's the kind of fluff that doesn't yet have the integrity to do what needs doing, but the elements are potentially there. And that's where I guess the, the last thing I would say on this is like, when I think about the urban work that needs doing to make cities beautiful, there's amazing stuff. I mean, every city has amazing things and Montreal is no exception. Some really cool things going on, but they're like initiative level. Mm -hmm. And the main dialogue is still, you know, what's happening with property values, mm -hmm. right? How expensive is housing? So how do we tilt that and make it like where, you know, I don't know, but I imagine a world where who cares about property mm -hmm. value? In fact, the word property needs to be blown up. Oh, oh my goodness! Uh, you know, like I'm, I'm quoting the same thing about like sapiens. You know, the construct, yeah. the property. Just even even going back to like urbanization. You know, where universal basic income or just sort of you yep. know to to help everyone feel safe. I think in terms of you know, I think there's benefit of 
artificial intelligence actually we, at some level we've created that because we know our potential is greater you know we've created we're going to create space for thinking and, and poetry and good good thought good visions I mean you know that we can create that thinking time or as cities do we want it all to be capitalism or I, I, I see it here in our little village foreigners buy up and it's like why haven't we got a system that creates a certain barrier, you know. I think in New Zealand they're, they're not allowed <laughs> they're stop yeah. buying. You know, I think there is there's some big decisions that we have to make as a society or something around around that. I don't know. I feel like I'm okay. I could well it's big. There's so much to this. Yeah, I mean there's lots to say. You know, having that faith, when you're going back to the individual, I mean, it's sort of like where you know you trust yourself. I mean, you literally, like, we, we do our own work. We do our own healing. You know, what is our own shadows? What is our own integrated self? Mm-hmm. So I think it's always coming back to ourselves. I'm just sort of thinking we're, we're, we're always doing stuff, you know, as, as humans. We, you know, like there's no wrong thing in our lives. We've done no... You know, it's all part yeah. of it. But the more that we can get stronger in our integration and in integrity, and then we, will, we, we do end up in that collective, you know, helping the collective. And it, and it does grow. I do want to touch on the shadows thing for a second because I think um, another area I see wanting a little bit of blowing up, it's all connected, right? Let's blow up property and our notion of owning things and, you know, this linear industrial model, we know that's done, so we got to blow that up. Um, and let's unleash our potential so we can deliver on the most elegant, beautiful, amazing ways of being and, and do that in collaboration with one another. Like, yeah, awesome, okay. Um, and when I see some of the, like, really exciting initiatives and websites and, like, dialogue going out there, going on out there, I see, I see beautiful, wonderful things. A lot of it I'm, like, totally into and inspired by. And sometimes I feel like we, 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 my culture, I guess I'd say, like raised in a Western, like achievement oriented mindset, we really overemphasize the need for it to be awesome and to like celebrate the wins and all that kind of stuff. And I want to make sure we realize a lot of this is actually coming from a really horrible place like we my ancestors um didn't do anything wrong I'll, I'll like i'll go with that there is no right or wrong and actually in the process killed a lot of people and did a lot of harm to ecosystems and each other and uh you know the hows and whys of that are are worthy of lots of scholarship and and dialogue but you know and and the fact that a genocide continued to play out in Canada and a very, very racist, uh, anti-Indigenous and anti-essentially non-conformist culture still continues here. And, you know, the percentage of people in our prisons, the fact that we have prisons and in it, these are, these are systemic dark areas that don't go away when we have these like rosy pictures of like children in fields of integrated crops with, some goats, you know, that's not going to get us there. So I, and don't get me wrong. I love goats. If you, anyone who's hung out with me knows I, I have a bit of a thing for goats. So in fact, this is made for my hair and I know the goat herd who uh, raised the goats. So it doesn't mean, you know, spend all day 
thinking about genocide, um, it does mean recognizing how much of what I have materially, how much of my ability to have gotten the education I got, to have been to the places I've been, to have created the network of people that I have, how much of that is because of the harm that was done to others? And not to say it in a shaming way, not like, oh my God, I should give everything away and you know live on the street. No, but recognize mm-hmm. that this is true and or find out what is true. And then in recognizing that, make darn sure I'm not part of repeating it. Because what worries me is I see this kind of back to the land movement. I'm like, eek, it's another round of colonization, basically. It's another round of like, I'm just going to go buy land somewhere that's better. Because I don't like it here for whatever reason. It's too crowded. There's diseases. I don't like the politics. All the reasons that my great-grandparents left. Except it's just going 250 kilometers away instead of across an ocean. It's not solving the mindset and the structural inequalities and injustices and atrocities, ecological and societal. And so I'm, I'm a bit of a Debbie Downer at, you know, back when we had parties, because I would raise that and say, you know, yeah, like I love the idea of regenerative farming and I have regenerative farming friends. I've mentioned the, the um, emergent strategy, the book by Adrian Marie Brown, who, uh, the book was mentioned to me by a wonderful friend who's a regenerative farmer. And so like, I'm all for regenerative farms, please. But <clears throat> along with celebrating the shiny, happy people and the guys with beards and the kids with rubber boots, um, we need to remember why we're here, like how we got where we are Absolutely. and what, what we took and what we still haven't given back. Yeah. And there's a cost to that. And as long as we don't remember that, we are part of perpetuating its continuation or its repetition. Like when we talk about darkness and the inner work, it's partly, you know, I have my own personal journey, plenty of darkness and baggage to work through, uh, you know, and, and good days and bad days and all the rest of it. Like a lot of humans, uh, certainly a lot of like single women of a certain age, humans. But then when I take a step wider and I say, what's the fractal there? You know, what's the fractal inner journey of understanding that darkness, that baggage, that sorrow, whatever it may be, and then go wider and say, what's, what else? And what else? And what else? And so that as I go through my own personal healing journey, I can recognize a contribution to and a connection to a wider healing journey. That's beautiful awareness, Lorraine. I think, you know, I think we have to do what, what you're just saying, I think, to in, in order to acknowledge, acknowledge our past, our ancestors and our, our roots and whose shoulders are we standing on or whose land are we standing on, you know, to be that healer, to be that, yeah, that I think the human, we might go in cycles, you know, but we want to do a dance like a lot better than the, you know, <laughs> than happened in the past. And then stepping into that, and I think this lovely, this darkness, we have to face that because, and we have to um, see where, what has to die within us, whether it's our beliefs or our values or our habits or our constructs in order to be reborn. I think, you know, I think at a organisation level, I think we need to talk about death and, you know, and not even, not, not even uh, dip in performance, <laughs> you know, what why? Yeah. What has to die here, you know, board members, in order for you to evolve? Compost. 
It's all about compost. Yeah. My worm composters that I've had, I had worm composters when I lived in New Zealand, had them living in Toronto, had them living in New York, have some again in Montreal. My worms have taught me so much about how life actually works. It's like you put that banana peel in there and you get the best soil, but you have to put the banana peel in there. Otherwise you just have squirming worms who die. You know, you have to let that stuff go and you have to put it in the right place. If you just put it in the garbage, it rots. And then you have to deal with rot. But if you put it where that rot can, can nourish what comes next, and people, it's so funny. I love talking to, worm, talking to people about worm composting. People are like, oh, that's gross. I'm like, you think worm composting is gross, but throwing nutrients away and letting them rot is actually like a tidy. You know, we've got, we've got it all upside down. So, yeah. Really? Yeah. On that, I actually, on, on death, I, um, I, I always thought I would want to be cremated, but I do want to be buried. I do want worms to get me. Nice. I think I, I'm, I'm, I'd like to get to the bottom of a body of water. I think that's where I belong. If it's, if it's like safe and not problematic for the creatures, I think I should just be in my final, my death apron yeah. and let me, yeah. let me be at the bottom. Mm-hmm. On that I, cheery note. <laughs> Yeah, there's so much to cover, but it's, what is the, do you want to, is there a final? Mm. I always, it's funny, I always sort of kick myself after I give a presentation or something, where I think I should have had some kind of call to action. But I, I don't really, I mean, I'll try now, which is I would just say, I hope we can embrace our potential. I feel like this is a time I see the next little while or I see now already and the next few years being very, um, very trying on many levels. I think they already are for a lot of people Um, in different ways. I would include myself in there. It's been a very trying time. I'm very privileged. I'm safe and well. Uh, And then there's been some trials and tribulations. I won't detail at the moment. Um, And yet I don't feel fearful. I don't feel, sometimes I feel a bit angry about how things are playing out, but mostly I just feel really curious Mm. and really excited, even though it's kind of catastrophic and accelerating. And maybe that's what ultra training has given me, or maybe that's why I got into ultra running or you know, it's also maybe what spinning and playing with art has done for me. It's just like, we don't know how things are going to go, but why not both stick around to find out and imagine what we could contribute to make it excellent instead of staring at the part of the path we really don't want to see happening. It's that, you know, there's so much of this talk of like manifesting or, you know, dream the reality and imagine you're in that reality. And I guess it's a version of that and genuinely not being afraid. And so I guess the call to action I give myself, because I definitely have some dark times. (laughs) I'm just picturing my little, the jury of my peers that I connect with, especially some really great girlfriends in my life who know the darkness. Um, They know, and we're all in it. So But when those moments happen, I feel very empowered to give myself permission to step out of them and say, like, (laughs) 
I was sort of joking again, sorry, mom, if you listen to this, but like when we were tree planting back in the day, it was a messy time. It was a lot of substance abuse. Uh, I was probably one of the cleaner planters, but there were a few times where we messed around a bit, including uh, doing acid and, you know, acid really messes with your head. Right. And so crazy things happen. But one of the things I learned from doing acid is like, it's just the acid. And so when things start to really wobble and feel really terrifying, I can just say to myself, Oh, it's just the terrifying, you know, it's just the fear or it's just the, it's just that thing that I don't have to give into. I can just experience it with curiosity. And like with acid, you know, I'm not here to promote the use of illicit substances and I lead a very clean life. We're just talking. I don't even drink anymore. Um, But, you know, you can see it from an external perspective and choose whether you're going to fall into that and go into a state of hysteria or catatonia, even worse. I mean, being paralyzed by the fear, you're not serving yourself mm-hmm. and you're not serving others. And so I guess I would just invite myself and anyone who wants to join me to remain curious, you know, ears forward and tail perked up and looking after ourselves as well as possible so that we're ready to adapt to whatever happens and um, and comfortable enough being with each other and with ourselves that we can move into new and different spaces. All right. Yeah. Just that. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Penny. It's great to be here. And see you back for the next Earth Converse podcast. In the meantime, go out and enjoy nature one conversation at a time.